Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. I'm here today talking with Michael Mitchell. He's a former hedge fund partner with over 15 years of public markets investing experience. He's worked with special situations, activism, and event-driven long-short trades. He retired from the hedge fund world and shares investment thoughts and ideas on Twitter under his handle, Ignore Narrative. Currently, he runs the Children's Eye Care Center of Northern Colorado with his wife, an ophthalmologist. He also serves on a number of corporate boards and is a father of three. Welcome to the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So how'd you get your started with investing? What interested you in it? So the the history of it, I had this sort of aha moment in 2002 in Norman, Oklahoma. I, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I started a business in uh, 1999, dropped out of school. It failed. Went back to school. I finished uh, my last, did my last two and a half years and one essentially and graduated on time, which was a huge mistake. I should have just stayed in Stillwater. That was a great time. I decided to go to graduate school, so I didn't know what I was going to do. And that first week of graduate school in Norman, I met a pretty famous investor named Michael Price. He's a pretty famous value investor, worked for Max Heine and Mutual Series. He's a legend. Yeah, a legend. Exactly. I met him on campus. So he went to school in Norman in the 70s, randomly from Long Island. And uh, he was dropping off his son, one of his sons, as a freshman in Norman that week that we were doing our orientation. So he decided to stop by the incoming business school class and have breakfast with all of us. And he got up and, and uh, it was a really just a, he was such a character. You know, he didn't like giving speeches. So he, he would just get up and sort of say like, I'm Michael Price. You know, do you have any questions? <laughs> you know? So, so uh, you know, when I saw him, I, it was just sort of like, oh my God, he's the first you know billionaire I'd ever met. You know, growing up in Oklahoma, there's not a ton of them floating around. So I, you know, I was just sort of starstruck, and uh, I didn't really ask any questions, but a, a lot of questions were asked of Michael. And I remember I had started this business. I was like, God, this is really hard. I'm out raising capital, and I'm like, things, you know, it's difficult having employees and like, I, you know, I'm questioning our business model and all these things. And then he gets up and he says, well, what I do all day is I, I look at, you know, businesses and business models. And I sort of pass judgment on them and try to come to some semblance of what I think fair value might be based on, you know, where peers are trading and, you know, some of the parts and all these different things. And, and then I cut that number in half and that's where I, that's where essentially I'm a buyer. And I, and I just remember thinking, I was like, oh my God, that sounds so easy. I was like, I could do that. <laughs> that not, does not sound complicated at all. You're a billionaire. You did something that sounds really easy. I could totally do that. It sounds a lot easier than starting a business. And so it, that sort of began my love affair with uh, with investing. And my singular goal, OU every year sponsors uh, a handful of MBA students to go to New York for the summer and take classes at NYU. And get internships. And I, that kind of became my singular focus is to get that scholarship and take classes at NYU. And, and they sort of demand that you get an internship. And I, I sort of did an end around the school. They, they're very protective of their relationship with Michael for obvious reasons, or they were, unfortunately, Michael's passed now, but they were very protective of that relationship. And I remember asking the school, can I, uh, can I contact Michael about potentially getting an internship? They're absolutely not. Do not contact Michael Price directly. He took interns in the past. If he's going to take one, he's going to go through us. And so I, uh, I snooped around and found his uh, email address and phone number. And I, nice. shot him, <laughs> yeah, I shot him an email and just said, you know, I'm one of the incoming kids. I fascinated by what you're doing and I'd love to work for you. And I'll, uh, he was a big polo player and lived in Far Hills, uh, New Jersey at the time. I was like, I'll wash your car. I'll feed your horses. I'll do your laundry. I don't really care. I just, I'll do anything you want and I'll do it for free. You let me just sit in the office for a little bit and like listen to what you guys are talking about because I want to learn. And lo and behold, the guy doesn't email me back. He just calls me, just picks up the phone, calls my home line. <laughs> and uh, so I had forever, I wish I still had this uh, answering machine, but forever I had this voicemail on my old, it's one of those old school answering machines from 2004 that uh, said, I, this, or 2003, says, oh, this is Michael Price. I got your email. You know, yeah, I'll give you an internship. Give me a call. I was like, uh, so I called him, got an internship. And 
the rest is history. He got me my first job. It was Jeffrey's uh, in research. I covered post-reorg equities. I moved to New York without a job after school ended and no idea like what I was going to do. I figured I'd give it three months to see if I could make something work. And I, I remember a job opened up, Jeffrey's in research and post-reorg research, which is something I was really interested in. And I was in one position. I don't know how many applicants, must have been hundreds that they had. I remember interviewing for it and the, the guy I interviewed with said, oh, you did a pretty good job. And after the interview, I went downstairs. It was it was one floor above Michael's office in Short Hills, New Jersey. And I went down. Michael happened to be in the office that day and said, oh, Mike, I haven't seen you in a couple months. How are things going? I said, well, I just interviewed upstairs uh, for a post-reorg equity job. He said, get out of my office. And he just waved me off. And, and uh, lo and behold, he calls the head of the high yield trading desk. He was working like, work, like next to Rich Handler, uh, who is and was the CEO of Jeffrey's. <laughs> And a day later, I had a job. <laughs> and then from nice. there, I sort of kept going, right? I thought I would work for two years in New York and moved back to Oklahoma. And it, you know, two years later, I had a different job and I uh, was making more and more and more money and just sort of falling upwards. So I stayed and, and uh, the rest is history. Very cool. So from your interactions with Michael Price, what were some of the uh, major lessons that you learned from him? Uh, you know, he had a very interesting take on a sort of life philosophy or investing philosophy, life philosophy, I'm not so sure, but investing philosophy, just everything was just super simple. Like there was nothing really complicated with Michael. It was all very straightforward. At least that was my experience with him. And I had a lot of experience with him shortly after he sold mutual series and set up his family office. He was still managing outside capital at the time. And so that's when all my interactions were. And then, of course, as I got these jobs, they sort of faded. And and I kept in touch with Michael, but you know, working next to him and our, our stocks didn't line up or anything. So, but in this in the moment in time, you know, think of it as two thousand and two to two thousand eight nine. In that moment of time, I did get the snippets of Michael where there was zero nonsense. The guy was he was a very say a tough personality, but a lot of guy. I mean, that's like the vintage that a lot of those guys were no nonsense. Everything's very simple. We're buying something very cheap. I mean, very focused on asset values, very focused on comps, very focused on deal proxies. The guy loved deal proxies. He would often, he did a lot of uh, merger ARB and often would use information from merger proxies to make other investments, which I've always thought was interesting. He would often exercise appraisal rights, which I always thought was interesting. I never knew anybody who did that, uh, but Michael did it. He did it with some regularity. I'm not sure what his success was on those. It could have been, I assume it was great because he kept doing it, but who knows? So yeah, if I was to distill it down to one one concept, I would just say it's incredibly simplistic. I mean, it, it, like shockingly simplistic, but but also very effective. Yeah. I think that's a common theme you hear among great investors that they often have a very simple, straightforward way of looking at the world. I think that's right. I mean, that's that's been my experience. I occasionally post that. Uh, I forget what that meme is called, but I do. I just love it. It's the uh, the mental gymnastics meme. I I love that where it's like the one person just you know walks across the mat, you know, on the top, and and then on the bottom, it's like does a triple backflip and then flies over a car, dumping gasoline. You know, <laughs> it's like at a certain point, you know, if it if it gets really complicated. It just, there's just so many things you can't know. And uh, when you start adding in a lot of complicated variables, at least my history with that is, is that it, it seriously lowers the probability of success. I think that's right. Yeah. It's kind of like a parlay bet. It's like you have to bet on this outcome and then you need this event to happen and then you need right. that event to happen. And the more complex it is, the less likely it is it's going to work out because you need I each of those right. things to happen. I think that's right. I'm actually okay with a strategy like that so long as it's unbelievably asymmetric. So it's like, if it's thousand one, right? It's like, okay, you know, I'll do something incredibly complicated where 50 things have to, you know, go a certain way for this to pay off, you know, and I'll, I'll throw a couple of bucks in and we'll see what happens. But if it's, you know, if you're getting similar odds on simplicity versus complicated, it's like, my God, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, just wait for something simple, you know, it's, it's the one foot hurdles. Yeah, uh, totally. So in that time when you started investing, it was during kind of the, the dot-com bubble collapse. Yeah. So yeah. what lessons did you take away from that? Everybody gets colored by the events that happened to them. And I think in particular, in the early years of your career, in the early years, you start thinking about business and investing both, and probably in other things in life too, if you really sat down and thought about it. But so a lot of the way I approached the world 
stems from my father and his experience in business. He, my growing up, my father's a he's a clinical psychologist. He was a tenured full professor at the University of Central Oklahoma my entire life, and wow. and he was he was also was a clinical psychologist and then also a, a corporate psychologist. So he'd go in and do you know screening of applicants, personality screening to see if they'd fit you know C suite stuff and. So my dad basically was essentially a school teacher, think of it that way, with some sort of side hustles. In 1994, his older brother, Bubba Mitchell, my uncle, who he just passed a couple of weeks ago, sadly. I'm sorry he, to hear that. Yeah, he was a, a professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Wyoming. And, you know, just really colorful guy. I mean, just a real character. He started a business called Aspen Tree Software, sold it, made millions. And he's the first person in my family. My, you know, my grandfather grew up Dust Bowl, Oklahoma, lived in a dirt cave. Family didn't have a house. They had like one mule you know, kind of a thing. You know, so my, that's how my grandfather grows up, my dad's dad, and goes to war and comes back and works for the government. You know, and my, my whole family thinks it's amazing. Like the second guy in my family would go to college, that kind of stuff. And, and it's just very modest, right? Very modest life. And then, then his children become college professors, mostly school teachers. And, but then Brooks decides, like, ah, Bubba decides, I'm going to go you know, start this business and starts it, you know, makes millions and it's selling it. Everybody in the family's like, whoa, you know, what just happened? And so, uh, and I, I was, I was pretty, I was born in 79. So this is all happening when I was like 10, 12 years old, uh, 13 years old. And so my dad's like, well, I could do that. You know, if, if Bubba did it, like, why don't I do it? So my dad takes this crazy leap of faith in 94 or five and puts most of the psychology stuff on hold to start a business that became ijob.com. And his whole thought process was, so he was doing a lot of pre-application screening for C-suite stuff. So you're coming in for a job of head of sales and they want to be sure that they're going to fit in with the organization because they make a big commitment to you. So they bring my dad in for a day of just kind of discussions and talking and he'd run some, he had them do some, I forget what those things are called, but it's essentially like, give me a personality test and uh, see how they fit. So he decided that he would do something similar, but he'd condense it down for more blue collar employees like nurses, truck drivers, et cetera, jobs that typically have high turnover. And so what he was trying to do was to lower the turnover of HR departments and blue collar jobs. And he was trying to condense it down to some pretty simple things that you could sort of test for and then you know run it through a screen and it wouldn't replace an HR department, but it would give you sort of tip the HR department off that these are the highest likely candidates based on your firm's criteria. And at the genius part of the idea was I'm going to put it online. And this was like 96, 97. And so he, he decided instead of having like paper forms that he had to run, he was going to have a website where you just could become a customer and then you could send people to the website and they'd take the test and then it would just funnel to HR. And he got a really big local client in Oklahoma City, a, a large hospital network. And as his first customer, and I mean, after two or three years of running it in the late nineties, he sold it to Lawson Software, some public company and huge number millions and millions of dollars, a lot of earnout. Uh, gosh, I, I was young at the time. I wish I, I knew then what I know now, of course, hindsight's 2020, but you know, but he still got a, a big check. And for my family, it was just like, I mean, I was 17, 18. It was like, we went from like always sort of, you know, living, you know, 30 days or 60 days in front of us to being like, oh my gosh, like things just changed for the Mitchells, you know, it's wow. just, wow. You know, and, and so that was why I started the business. My dad was like, well, you should, I probably did this. I did this. Why don't you do it? I was 18. So I, I stand, you know, money was everywhere. And, and our, our uh, group of friends, funny story. I mean, very reminiscent of uh, 2021 stuff, but a group of our <laughs> friends in town at a, a small, uh, it's called Applied Intelligence Group. And I'm not 100% sure what they did is consulting for some local businesses, but they, they had a NASDAQ listed stock price. And it, I mean, forever it was like 50 cents a dollar. It's just, and I, I mean, I was too young to pay attention. I could go audit this now and figure out the exacts, but somehow they got caught up. There was something they were doing. They got caught up in all the hubbub on .com and their stock went from 50 cents to $100 a share. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. It was like insane. And so we, we went to church with all these founders, you know, had a bunch of stock. And these guys went from being like making, think of a guy making 50, $60,000 a year to being worth like 40 million bucks. You know? Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. And so all these guys are like, you know, and of, of course they're, they're not, you know, financial minded by training. They just see this and they're like, yeah, this is great. You know, look how well we did it. You know, they didn't sell everything. You know, a couple had the foresight to do it, but they didn't sell everything. And uh, so they wrote it all the way up and they wrote it all the way down. But in that time when they had, you know, on paper, they were worth a ton of money. They were like, yeah, we'll back you. So I, I put together a business plan and 
uh, raised a million bucks and hired a bunch of people and dropped out of school and went to Tulsa, Oklahoma, the striding metropolis of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, uh, and we got to work on it. We, we start, I mean, we basically, I got us right out of the gate, no revenue, but I got us out of the gate, at least with a plan to get to revenue and the world just fell apart and all of our money stopped. I mean, they, they committed a million, but they were like, it's, you know, $75,000 a month. We'll pay every month. And they called and we're like, Hey, we're, we don't have any money. Sorry. We're not writing any more checks. So it was basically like you go to your people and the landlord and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm out of money. So I can't pay anybody. And so eight people, see you later, at uh, least see you later. I moved back to Stillwater. So I like really lived the ride, uh, the ride up. And I, I was watching it. On, I was young, but I was watching it. You know, I feel like somewhat of a front row seat. So that very much colored one, how I thought about starting a business versus becoming a stock analyst. I was like, this is just, I'd, I'd rather be a critic uh, than a, than a talent, you know, I'd rather just sit back and, <laughs> and pick on what other people do as opposed to do something myself. It's just easier and you can make a lot more money. And, and so that, that colored it. And then also just, I never, there's two things I've never spent any real time on in my career. It's technology and energy growing up in Oklahoma through the energy cycles. I've just never had an interest in it. And then watching that happen in technology, I mean, you can make a fortune, but it also, things just change really quick. Right. And so it's, I've always been more interested in things that you know don't change. My, my biggest investment is trees in Canada. Right? <laughs> their, life, their life cycles are decades, right? So uh, anyway, so that yes, it, it very much colored my opinion and and perspective more so than you know living through Zales in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, which was harrowing. Uh, but I, I have more of an impression from the, the sort of early years uh, than anything else. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and. Um... Going through that experience in the early 2000s, do you see any parallels between what happened in the early 2000s and late 90s compared to what happened in, say, 2020 and 2021? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, there's it's all this stuff rhymes, right? It's like it's the you know euphoria is is a it's a common theme in in capital markets and and throughout. I mean, you go by it goes back to whatever 1300s from tulip bulbs to. Uh, trading companies that, you know, it just, it always happens, right? It, it is always different, but it, it happens all the time. And in your life, like I've now had two of those moments in time. And, and my suspicion is, is that well, I'll see at least one more before I kick the bucket. I might see two more. I mean, I had, I had two big ones in, in 40 years. So there's no reason to think about if I don't make it to my actuarial endpoint that I'll, I'll see at least a couple more of those. So yeah, it's, it's this just wild speculation is, very common and it happens all the time. And that's, that's exactly what it was in 2000 and 2021. It's just wild speculation. And that's what it was in the late nineties, wild speculation. And interestingly, it's, it's my observation on that is always based in something real. There's some tangible foundation that is correct, but then there's just this wild speculation around it. I mean, you know, everybody thought in the dot-com boom, the internet was going to revolutionize the world. And it absolutely did. (laughs) They were right. You know? Yeah. There's always a grain of truth. That's right. And it was right. It was just early and there was a ton of speculation around it, but they were right. You know, Amazon was going to become, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. And uh, that was the correct take. The problem is everybody thought pets.com was going to be the second largest company in the world. Right. And they said (laughs) the thesis was right, but it was taken to a, a really crazy a really crazy level very early. And uh, so, and I suspect a lot of that stuff, you know, you just had a lot of wild stuff going on in 20, 2020 and 2021. And I suspect some of it's going to end up being right. Uh, but I suspect a lot of it's going to end up just being wild speculation. Yeah. You had that early stage, then you entered into the hedge fund industry, and then you kind of experienced firsthand the global financial crisis. You mentioned mm-hmm. your sales investment. Did you want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what you experienced during the financial crisis and what lessons you learned from it? Yeah, I, man, I'll talk to you about anything you want. So even though the dot-com stuff was more, put a bigger impression on me, the 2008 stuff was much, it was wild. There's no way to explain it other than it was just really wild. And it was much more, much crazier than the dot-com stuff, much crazier than the 2020 and 2021 stuff. That's common too. What happened in 08 is not uncommon historically, but it's much less common than the mania, but it, but it is common. So 2006, I get a job at a, what became a fairly large activist hedge fund in Greenwich and was the first analyst hired and ended up becoming a senior analyst there and had a couple of activist engagements. And my job was, we were governance activists, but my job was to go out and find a business that we thought was being run 
suboptimally, to be kind, and that had some governance issues. And we would come in with a large position, we would get board seats, we'd help them with their governance. And then we'd also try to find some ways to optimize maybe the capital structure or, or maybe the expense base or or maybe just sort of push them in a direction that they probably should have been going on their own, but for one reason or another, they they were not. So my job was not to sit back and opine about you know macro events and and uh, you know so it, that was not what I was supposed to be doing. So it, they said go find some good stocks, and I was getting paid based on my sourcing of activist ideas, right? So sourced one in 2006, Applebee's, and we had an okay outcome on that one. We got it sold uh, relatively quickly. And thank goodness we did because the whole plan there was was leverage, and uh, leverage was not what you wanted in 08. No way. So we got that, yeah, we got that sold, and we moved on. And my second activist engagement was Zales. I had a it was a, it was a pretty simple thesis. The uh, Zales had just consistently lost share to K, which is owned by Sterling. K historically had been the little brother of Zales, and Zales had historically been dominant, and that just switched. And and it it was probably some management issues. There was a lot of turnover at Zales, and and then also just a lot of people not paying attention. And so the expense base kept growing and comp sales were kind of flat and nobody was really investing in the business. And But they did something really interesting. And the reason, the only reason I bought it, I didn't buy it because I wanted to be long retail jewelry in 07. I bought it because they had a an in-house insurance, a captive insurer. They would provide warranties on jewelry. The warranty business is a fascinating business, highly profitable. There's some that are publicly traded. They're, they're really good businesses. It's an interesting sales pitch. It's like, I typically don't buy them because I know how good of businesses they are, but if you need one, it actually can have some value. The issue is in jewelry. So you think about the, the person, the average customer is walking into a sales to, to really make our year. It's a person going in to buy an engagement ring or somebody going in to buy jewelry just yeah. before Christmas, like sort of last minute. That, that person is like 25. Let's just pick a number. mid twenties male. Probably doesn't know a ton about jewelry, right? Because he's in his ales to sort of learn. He's like, I, I need jewelry. I go to a jewelry store, right? So I'm going to an expert. It's jewelry is a, is a product that's sold. It is not bought. So they go into his ales and they really like want to see a big selection. And, and then they want to understand all the different dynamics of how diamonds are sort of valued and cuts and clarity and all the things. So at the end of all that, you got a guy who's, who's, you know, whatever he's making, he's spending a big chunk of it on an engagement ring. And you know, he's very optimistic, obviously, or he wouldn't be getting married. It's not that difficult to say, hey, for a hundred bucks, would you like to add a warranty to this? If anything happens, you yeah. know, for the, we will warranty against defects, but you could warranty against all kinds of other things. Nothing really happens to diamonds. I mean, they're pretty, pretty tough. <laughs> you know, it's just right. sell 14 karat gold. Nothing really happens with platinum. Nothing really happens to that either. And of course, you don't sell the really soft stuff because stuff happens to that. But you know, so but it's not a hard sales pitch. And guys, like, you know what? I just spent four grand on this ring, an extra hundred bucks. Sure. And a lot of it's finance too, right? So like you just add a hundred bucks to a financing package just to get the warranty. It's like absolutely we'll do that. So it becomes like a tolling business. And so I enjoyed that. I liked that business. It's a very small piece of the overall puzzle, but they made a, a really important change in the mid to late 2000s where they, they took the product from being a, a one, three, and five-year offering to a lifetime offering. That matched the competition. This is what Kay was doing. And when they did that, they essentially, they doubled the price. So it's not 100 anymore. It's 200, but it's a lifetime, right? So it's not five years. You get it forever. Of course, you have to bring it back and get it cleaned. We have to inspect it and make sure there are no problems. But as long as you fill your end, will warranty it for for the life of that ring. The reason I got excited is because you took something that, oh yeah, I take some coffee. Thank you. My better half is a very sweet person. Thank you, Bear. Nice. Anyway, so what happened was you took the you 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 took the price point of this product and you essentially doubled it and instances did not change. So even more so basically you just you double the price and you didn't increase costs at all. And even more interestingly, and this was now becoming like like 25% of EBITDA is like a huge, you know, all of a sudden it was a huge number and a pretty nice little business. And even better, what I noticed was their headline results started looking horrible because their auditors, uh, two audit committees now, and so it's really a fascinating experience being on audit committees. But so their auditors said, well, uh, okay, so you're making this change. So typically you'd recognize something like, you know, 80% of the revenue of the product in year one, and then 20% we'd amortize over five. Because if you have an instance, it's probably going to come in the first year. And when we changed to lifetime, they said, ah, uh, we, I wasn't on the board at the time. When they changed the lifetime, 
the auditor said, well, we don't, this is a new dynamic and we don't know how this is going to go. So instead of giving you 80% in year one, we're going to radically do 20% per year over five years. So functionally what happened, the price point of this product doubles, profit rips because there's no incremental cost to these, margins are, are going up. So on a cash basis, the business is getting quite a bit more valuable. But on a gap reported basis, you took something where you were realizing 80% of 50 cents, so 40 cents on the dollar, right, it, relative to the new product, 40 cents on the dollar in year one, and then the other 10% to get you to half over five years. You now took that 40% recognition to 20% recognition. So essentially, you recognized half the revenue, even though the revenue doubled. If that oh, makes wow. sense, if I'm explaining. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. And, it, and it's all profit. So you, you're basically like you're, you're hitting revenue to a small amount, but it's 100% margin, essentially. So you're really taking EBITDA down. So EBITDA is growing. Like the way I'd look at it as an owner, it's growing. But the way it's being reported on a gap basis, and I realize EBITDA is not gap, but bear with me. As earnings are reported on a gap basis, it looks like sales are down a little bit and profits are down quite a bit. Margins are down quite a bit. But in fact, you go to the cash flow statement, shows it right there. Actually, a lot more dollars are coming in the door. And anyway, it's not hard to figure out, but you got to spend a little bit of time to figure this out. And so I, I'm just looking at this and I'm like, this is a freaking gold mine. Like we, we've struck gold, like stocks, terrible. Numbers look bad. In about four years, these numbers are going to look phenomenal. And we'll be generating a ton of cash in the interim. So I get this brilliant idea. So we go in with an activist agenda to, we, we buy a bunch of stock. We go in with an activist agenda uh, to, to try to lower costs and get the company to be a little bit more efficient. And really what I'm trying to do is just highlight the value of this insurance company and figure out if there's other things we can do like that inside the company to you know, generate profits. And I get this, we, we hire this new CEO, really sweet man, Neil Goldberg. And he gets this idea to uh, really clean up the store. So we have a ton of inventory. And he's like, these stores look cluttered. Why don't we just take a third of the inventory out of every store and we'll be really clean with really good product. I'm like, God, that sounds great. I and mean, I'm not a merchandiser, but yeah, it sounds, I, I get it. It sounds awesome. And so I'm like, well, Neil, what are you going to do with all that? We sold a, an ancillary brand called Bailey Banks of Biddle, got some money from that. And, and we're selling, you know, working capital or pushing working capital down and got some capital from that. Neil, what do you want to do with this? He said, I don't have anything to do with this. Well, great, let's buy back a bunch of stock. So instead of paying off debt, I took all this excess capital and all the capital that came out of working capital, and we just plowed it into share repurchase. And uh, we did it right into the teeth of the Great Recession. And oh um, yeah, it was gnarly. I mean, it was like we, we had the cushion. It was right there. We could have ridden it out. We would have been totally fine. But instead, I blew it on stock. And I say me. I mean, the board. I wasn't, I wasn't a voting member of the board, but I, I was urging them to do this and just not paying attention to macro whatsoever. And so we spent our safety net essentially on that and ended up, we needed the safety net and that the sort of too long didn't read version, which I've not been doing on any of this conversation, but the too long didn't read version is the stock went from, I mean, it was approaching 30 at one point, it went to 50 some odd cents. And there was, there wow. was a moment, there was a <laughs> moment in time where I'm having, I'm in these meetings with uh, restructuring advisors and, and we had unfortunately lost the, lost the CEO, uh, Neil, and I, I'm in with restructuring advisors and we're talking about, you know, how do we salvage the company? You know, it's like, how do we keep this thing alive? You know, and, and so we ended up needing to do a, a very dilutive capital raise and ended up great for Golden Gate Capital. I think it was one of their better all-time investments, a very expensive piece of debt, 15% and warrants to buy a big chunk of the equity at a, at a very, very low price. And then, you know, God bless the the Neil's team. They stepped up. Uh, Theo Killian's the guy's name. He's a hero of mine. He stepped up and took over as interim CEO and then eventually full-time CEO. And he pulled that company out of the doldrums with a new financing package, reloaded the inventory, stabilized sales. And they ended up five years later selling out to K. So they, they merged with K. And they merged for 24 bucks. I mean, which I think if we wouldn't have had to do the financing, would have had a three in front of it, is my guess. I wasn't on the board at the time they did this, but it ended up being okay in the end. But man, it, the ride was like, you know, there's a moment where you're like, holy crap, I'm dead. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so it, was not, it was not pleasant. I, I do, zero stars. I do not recommend. So when you're looking at investments today, from that experience, do you look for more of a, you know, kind of a... Uh safety cushion for the business? Do you prefer more like cash rich, low debt situations after going through that and seeing how it can go sideways? I wouldn't be as 
sort of rigid as saying I look for any uh, one specific thing, but I do. I would say I'm a lot more cautious. So you know, let me give you a, a current example. So I'm on the board of a, a decent sized forest products company in Canada, and we've sold since we we acquired a lot of assets uh, in 2021. And since then, uh, I joined the board in, in the fall of 2021. Since then, we've spent a lot of time selling assets that we view as non-core. And it, it's actually ended up being a lot of money. As Canadian dollars, we've sold something approaching 50 million worth of land and then mid-90s, including working capital worth of mills in a, in a province that we just didn't view as, as core. And we haven't We've done nothing but pay down debt, right? And just strand the cash on the balance sheet. That may be the plan going forward. We may change that. We may do some capital returns in the future, but uncertain economic times and uncertain cash flows, having safety cushion on safety cushion doesn't bother me, right? I'm like, you know, I, I would just, I want to make sure first that we survive. You know, it, what's the, what, you know, I'm a big Formula One fan. If you want to finish first, first you must finish, right? So, so we're, you know, so it definitely has colored my perspective. That being said, it, I, I wouldn't say like, oh, well, you got to have cash because, you know, that was a situation where we thought we could monetize some assets pretty quickly. So to do the initial deal, uh, we took on a, a fair amount, a hundred and some odd million worth USD of deal debt. And it wasn't a wasn't bridge, but it, it had some pretty onerous covenants. It was pretty expensive. And so we did that because we thought, well, we could, we could you know, one, we, we're, we're hoping cash from the business will help, which it, it ended up doing. But two, we thought we could sell some assets and get that down pretty quick. So I don't so much mind. I don't want that as a going concern necessarily, but if I don't so much mind getting into it, if we think we can get out of it pretty quick and we're, we're highly confident, of course, that's what happened in this case. So, uh, but I am a lot more conservative today than I was in 2007. And it is because it's not, nothing like a near-death experience to uh, change your view of, of uh, risks you should and should not be taking. Yeah, totally. So today you manage your own money. You're retired from the hedge fund industry. So as you approach investing today with your personal funds, how would you describe your overall investment philosophy? I have come full circle. I have now gone back to essentially starting and managing businesses uh, versus being a business critic. So how I spend my days, I'm a full-time office manager for Children's Eye Care of Northern Colorado. Um, and that that's a really, at some point in the future, we should have a longer conversation about the economics of, uh, of pediatric ophthalmology and, and eye care centers. It really is a, it's a fascinating space. Um, and, I, and I think it's going to end up being a very, very good decision for Carolyn and I to have, to have started that. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the economics of our, we have one box right now. So the four wall economics of our box and tracking the KPIs and and then also, but because I'm the office manager and there's two employees, you know, Carolyn and I, and we're not, neither one of us take a salary. We don't make enough money yet to take a salary, but I spend a lot of my time in customer service. So I, I answer the phone every time it rings. I, so I spend a ton of time on that. So it's true on the ground retail entrepreneurship. So that's, that's most of my time. And then it, you mentioned earlier, I sit on three corporate boards and that's where all my capital is, is within the companies I sit on the boards of. I'm trying to think if I have any meaningful stock outside of those those three engagements maybe a, a couple but they're related to those to those three and the vast majority of my capital is in one which is the forest products company up in canada and i really don't it is wild i, I when i worked in hedge funds you know you spend all day staring at prices because <laughs> like, you don't you don't get the daily kpis right so in absence of daily information about the business, which you're just not going to get as an external observer, your only information is a movement of a stock price. And so you sort of obsess over movements and stock prices. And I am very interested in movements and lumber prices. That that I, I tend to spend a lot of my days just checking those out. You know, I got 15 minutes and I get a break and go check the price of lumber. But the specific stock prices, I really don't, they don't, at the end of the day, I know what they did, but the vast majority of the time, I just don't pay attention to them anymore because I know what's going, you know, I know everything that's going on inside of these businesses. So it's really been full circle from, you know, I'm, I'm just a business critic to now I actually feel like I'm helping run a couple of businesses. I, I use that's very loosely said. I, I, as a board member, you don't really do any, there's no execution that happens on your part. You help with strategy and you try to make big decisions about hiring and firing and capital allocation and things. But I feel like I'm a part of these companies, right? And and certainly with Children's NOCO, I mean, it is just Carolyn and me. So we are making, I bought in the last two months, I bought over $100,000 worth of equipment, right? And it's it's a 
I'm spending a lot of time. That is, that really is me uh, executing. But so philosophically and where I'm investing now, I'm really investing in just these businesses that uh, I'm helping run and shape. I'm not doing any external stuff. People are hitting me up with really interesting liquidation ideas and things. I'm just like, guys, I don't have any capital for that. All my capital is tied up in the businesses that I've got. And maybe one day I'll be able to get back to that, which would be a lot of fun. But for now, I just, I want to make sure that Children's Eye Care, the Green First, that FG Group Holdings, another really interesting one called BK Technologies. I just want to make sure that those do the best they can. And uh, once those are sort of find their logical conclusions, then I'll step back and maybe get involved in some other things. Incidentally, I find what I'm doing now to be a lot more fun. I'm certainly having a lot more fun. I'm not sure. I, I'm certain I'm not making as much money as I did when I worked in hedge funds. <laughs> I always get a kick out of the, the hedge fund managers on Twitter because I, I know some of them and, they, and some of them manage actually some, some meaningful amounts of money. And I get a kick out of them because they're like, ah, oh, these guys suck and these guys suck. And I'm like, well, you know, it's like I used to throw stones when I was a hedge fund manager, but it, but it's a glass house. Like I, the funds I work for church two and 20. And our performance was okay, but it's not like a mate, you know, it's not like amazing. There's a couple guys around that have, have had some amazing returns, but even guys with some, some slight outperformance over, you know, I, I would call it a meaningless period of time, think of it as five years and they're out you know, trashing other people. And I'm like, yeah, charging a lot of fees and you're not, you know, it's like, <laughs> so anyway, but <laughs> it is what it is. Hedge funds are great businesses. You can have a real hedge fund, you get some scale. Michael used to tell me that was the third best business in the world was running a hedge fund and uh, he's not wrong. I mean, since there was no difference and I do the same amount of work to put a hundred million dollars to work as I do to put a billion dollars to work. And yet my fees are 10 times higher. You know, it's like, well, sounds pretty good to me. That's a pretty good business for, mm-hmm. for the owner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very <laughs> good. It, it might not be a, such a good deal for the investor. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do laugh. I do laugh when they, they're yelling at us, uh, you know, at uh, compensation for executives and board members. I'm like, Oh, you know, it's like, if you were undercharging your customers, I would be a lot more interested to listen. But uh, it's, it's rare to find a hedge fund manager that manages uh, you know, a couple hundred million dollars or a couple billion dollars and they're, they're undercharging. Underpaid is not a, a dynamic among hedge fund managers. Yeah. So you mentioned the economics of the ophthalmology industry. So you said that there are some very interesting things about the economics of that industry. So what are, yeah. what are some of the things you'd like to highlight there? I mean, for competitive reasons, I, none of my competitors are going to listen to who they wouldn't give a crap about what I said anyway. But say, so step back for a second and think about medicine. And doctors don't spend a lot of time thinking about economics of medicine, but I spend a lot of time thinking about economics of a lot of things. And I happen to be in healthcare now. So I spend a lot of time thinking about healthcare and among providers. So providers can be nurses, PAs, physicians, they can be uh, so MDs, they can be DOs, they can be ODs, which are optometrists, they, you know, a lot of providers, but among provider choices, so you decide I'm going to become a doctor. So every field is, every specialty is different. Ophthalmology and dermatology have interesting dynamics from a business perspective. And what I mean by that is there are three revenue streams for a dermatologist, say, or an ophthalmologist. You have the exam itself. So you come in because you, in ophthalmology, you fail a vision screening or you come to a dermatologist to get a checkup or because you're worried about some lesion or something. And so there's a bill that's created for that encounter. And in ophthalmology in particular, there's a lot of testing that happens because in ophthalmology, particularly in pediatric ophthalmology, there are a lot of issues that could be explained by issues in the brain. And so there's a lot of testing that goes on to make sure that that's not the case. And and hopefully it's not the case because it's usually not a great thing when the brain is involved, but there's a lot of testing that goes on to see what's happening with the eyes and make sure that the brain is not involved. Trying to get the eyes and the brain in sync requires a lot of testing. So you have the exam, you have testing, which I I think of that all as sort of a clinical revenue stream and clinical costs. You also have two others, you have procedures. So in ophthalmology and dermatology, it's surgical, but also in dermatology in particular, you have cosmetic. So you have a lot of uh, Botox, which is a, a very big business for dermatologists. You don't have that. Uh, we actually do Botox procedures, believe it or not, but not for cosmetics. We, my wife, not me, will inject Botox into muscles in the eye to help them straighten on their own. We'll get them. Well, you can you can actually strengthen and relax muscles that way by using Botox and and use that to reset the brain, which is considered a procedure, but it's obviously wow. it's covered by insurance. It's not cosmetic. So you have the procedure side of it. Oh, and now she's bringing me breakfast. You are the sweetest. Thank you, honey. Yeah, I'll take it. Why not? So. You have procedures. Uh, so if you think of a family medicine, a family doc, 
they have exams and sometimes testing, but there's no procedures, right? They don't do surgeries. And then you have a third, you guys are just being very sweet to me. Thank you very much. Sorry, my dad and my wife are bringing me breakfast. And then you have a third revenue stream or a third business. I actually think of this as a separate business, which are products. So we have an optical shop. I manage the optical shop and we have a, a different capital structure and cost structure and a different revenue model there. It's, it's truly a product business. In dermatology, you might sell a specialty sunscreen or lip balm. So if you think about like, well, I'm going to become a family doc. It's like, cool, you're, gonna, you're going to make money simply by the time that you spend with patients. And you get a lot of time with patients. You're, you know, you're the first line of defense in most cases, but that's that's it. That's what you get. Versus if you go into a, a specialty or subspecialty like ophthalmology, you have that part of the business. So you, you're in the clinic, but then you have a, a, a surgical side and the, the procedural penetration of new patients uh, for ophthalmology, for pediatric ophthalmology is, is low, but it's still you know, mid single digits. And, uh, and so there's a lot of procedures that get kicked out based on how many how many people walk through your door. Uh, if you go into things like cataracts, it's going to be a hundred percent, right? Because everybody, if you live long enough, everybody will get cataracts. So the, the procedure becomes, you know, a much higher penetration. And then you get optical and optical businesses. Like there's a reason there's a lot of optometrists in the world. There's a reason that Pearl Vision exists, that LensCrafters exists. There's a reason private equity owns America's best. And there's a reason why Warby Parker started up. I mean, the optical business is a very good business. It's interesting. We price... So when Carol and I started our optical business, one, we're the only you know, children's eye care center north of Denver. There's a lot of optometrists, but they're, they're family. They, adult is a much better optical business than kids. Kids is okay, but the price points are much lower and the margins are considered low for the industry. But we do that sort of intentionally because one, if you get me going on this, man, I'll just talk about it all day because it, it's really exciting to me. It, our mission, what we're trying to do is to bring world-class care to Northern Colorado. And I think we've done that. I, I heavily biased, but I think my wife is one of the best pediatric ophthalmologists in the world. And we just happen to want to be in Northern Colorado. So we're, we're bringing this wealth of experience and expertise and training to what I think is an underserved area. So world-class care is our number one goal. And we want to marry that or follow it with a wonderful patient experience, which I just don't think it's not common in healthcare to have a great experience. In particular, in Colorado, it's no, not common because not. yeah, exactly. You can you can, <laughs> can confirm, can confirm. Uh, in particular, in Colorado, it's not because Colorado has a very large and growing population, and, and it's growing above average, and it's relatively underserved by physicians. So, if you look at census scores for you know pediatricians per population. It is very low in Colorado, and it is oversaturated where we came from in Westchester County. So doctors are overworked, right? And so it's really hard to give a good experience when you're overworked and you sort of have a lot of volume and, and you, you, know, you want to meet the demand, but it's like, I can't spend time with patients. And we, we don't want to do that. We, we want, you know, the number one KPI I track is our Google reviews. That is the most interesting thing to me when I wake up in the morning. We don't have a lot of them. We have 12 of them. And so far, they're all five stars, and I am like over the moon about it. That's I want parents to leave us uh, with a great experience. And I think part of that experience is if you come in and your child needs glasses, we do the full fitting. I do it. I do the full fitting for you because in kids, the most important thing is that glasses fit. Uh, if they don't fit and they're not comfortable, they won't wear them. And in kids, it is if you need glasses and you're five years old, it is incredibly important for the development of your brain that you wear those glasses. So fitting is the number one thing. And so we have a I want to have a big selection. I want to fit them whether they buy from us or not. I don't care. But what I want to have happen is I want those families that don't buy from us immediately to leave and then price shop and then come back and go, you know, what? it's not. You guys did all the work. I love you guys. You'll warranty this. And your prices are basically the same as, you know, frames direct or whatever. So that's what we're shooting for, which means long-winded way of saying our margins are, are pretty low. Uh, but even in that, it's a good business. Like it's not even with that dynamic. I mean, our Right now, our penetration on uh, prescriptions to, to frames is like our, our conversion. I'm sorry, not penetration. Our conversion to prescription to frames is very high. It's in the 90s. And, and it's, I often get parents who go out and, and come back and say, oh, no, we'll just, we'll just buy from you. We looked around and we, we like the frames. We like you guys. We'll just buy from you. And that's what we want to have happen. But even with that, it's still a good business.
I know everybody else in town's business is better than mine, but I'm also thinking like over time, there's a thing that stuck with me and it's, it's like listening to Charlie and Warren, you know, it's like, I'm like everybody else, right? I listen to them. I'm like, this is so amazing. I listen to Charlie and Warren talk about like, you know, sustainable business advantages. And even with world-class care, which I think is a sustainable competitive advantage, I think the real advantage is it's like the gas station guy. What's the story Charlie gives? There's two gas stations and one of them has an owner that walks out at every fifth car and just washes the windshield and says, hi, eventually that gas station just crushes. You know, the other one has 15 owners and just can't, you know, maintain good ownership. And it's just that one simple thing that accumulates over time that stuck with me. And that's why I want the good experience for parents because 10 years from now, I want every parent who's seen us, one, I want 80% of all optical instances north of Denver for kids to be with us. And I don't see any reason why that shouldn't happen. But I want every parent, when they have a friend or they see somebody and their kids fails vision screening needs to come in. I want every parent to say, you are a crazy person if you do not go to Children's Eye Care of Northern Colorado. In my mind, I think it translates to people who decide like, oh, I, you know, I, I want to get into children's vision. And I love Fort Collins. It's a wonderful town. I can't say enough good things about Fort Collins and that whole area. I want to move to Fort Collins. I'll just set up my own shop. I want the banker that they go to for financing to say like, you are literally a crazy person. There is no way you should just go work for children's eye care. Brother Carl. You're not going to beat children's no code. It just doesn't, they are way too ingrained. They are way too loved. There's no scenario. That to me is the, if you really want to build a business that's durable and sustainable, that's how you do it. And uh, you don't do it by increasing your profit margins by 10 or 20% on optical instances. You do it that way. And like I said, it's good enough. So anyway, that is the the economics of of ophthalmology and healthcare are interesting because you have those the three legs of the stool. You have clinical, which feeds everything. And that's the bread and butter. It's the bulk of the, the dollars in the door is clinical. And then you have procedural and then you have product. And they all are a little bit different. And you can separate the product from clinical and procedural. Procedural is, they're all related, but procedural and clinical, it's often the same provider. So you really can't separate that. But optical could be its own entity. And it it often is, you know, for different locations have a different LLC form for optical. And doctors also are big into real estate. You could call that a business because you're sort of leasing it from yourself, but I don't really think of it that way. I think of it as just a more of a capital financing decision of whether you want to rent or own. Yeah. So it's, it's really, really interesting. And I'm so tempted because I just, I'm a person who likes to talk about numbers. I'm so tempted to just talk about the numbers, but it's also uh, my wife would probably kill me if I was going through all of our (laughs) (laughs) specific financial metrics, but in general, we're, we're doing good. It's we're nine months in, we're Right now, 16%, well, it just depends on how many people show up next week, but we're 16% ahead of our sort of benchmark plan for encounters, and we're 100% ahead on procedures. I, we didn't really think about this, but it's such an underserved area. There's 250,000 kids north of Denver and in the sort of lower Wyoming, western Nebraska, and then sort of on the, the mountainside, so think Steamboat Springs and sort of western Colorado that need eye care and often need pediatric focused eye care. So eye muscle eye care, and they don't, there's one guy, he's at a place. He's a really nice guy, Dr. Arnold at Eye Center in Northern Colorado. He's been there for years and years. The metric should be about 40,000 kids per pediatric ophthalmologist. And there's, there's five times that six times that. So it's pretty underserved. And so what, what thought, well, that's probably good for us in our volume. What we didn't think about was, well, that, that's actually probably better for procedures because those kids are getting seen somewhere. So they're going to an optometrist that, that doesn't do optometrists aren't surgical that goes to the MD. But those kids are, they still, you know, you still have that instances of strabismus that are not going to get fixed without surgical intervention. So, so our, our procedure volume has been, our procedure penetration has been pretty high. And our optical business, I did not think it was going to be all that much at all. We were going to offer it only really as a convenience to parents because you come in and, you're in our office for 60 minutes or 90 minutes for the exam. And you got a four-year-old, right? And they, they get very antsy. So we, we give out juice and popcorn and we have, we're set up for kids. We have TVs on and we have Legos everywhere and all the things, right? But even with that, you know, kids don't want to be, you know, they don't want to stick around. And then you tell a mom like, okay, your kid needs glasses. They've got, you know, a really, you know, meaningful astigmatism. And this needs to be corrected, uh, particularly when they, when they start school. And then you say, okay, now you got to go down the street to another place and uh, buy your glasses and uh, take this prescription with you. Know? And it's like a lot of parents are like, well, you know, what does it cost? It's like, oh, it's a couple hundred bucks. And I, got, I just want to do it here. I just don't want to go. I just don't want to go anywhere else. So we thought 
it would be a convenience. And it's actually ended up being a, a pretty big business for us, to my surprise. And we're, that's part of the investment that we made in equipment is I'm actually going to start making edging, not making, we're buying stock lenses. So I'm going to start edging them myself. So I'm going to go, it's, it's taking my carpentry skills and translating it into edging lenses. So we're going to do it in-house, which just means we can turn it around faster. <laughs> so yeah, it's been exciting. It's a good, it's good times. So I'm, I'm really, I really, for 15 years working in hedge funds, I was really not excited to go into work on Monday. By the way, it's a misnomer because you're going into work on Monday, but you're working all weekend because you're getting nailed from your PM like every 30 minutes with like all the PMs. They always work on Sundays. I don't know why. It's very weird. But like from Steve Cohen, I think Sunday is like his most important work day all the way down to Steve I worked for. I mean, Sunday afternoon, he like decides that's the time I'm going to sit at my desk and go over all the research reports and so you're just getting fired off questions about everything. And okay, I want you to look at this on Monday. <laughs> I'm like, dude, the weekend. So I just like loathed going in on Monday. That sounds horrible. Yeah, it's <laughs> awful. I mean, they pay you for the pain, uh, but it was not pleasant. Now on Sundays, I'm like, I wonder how many calls we're going to get on Monday. This is like, look at all these people who are coming in on Monday. And I've got a, we're building out our optical shop. We're getting ready for back to school, which is sort of our Super Bowl season. July and August is when we get the craziest. So we're building out our optical shop. And like, as I'm doing the edging, I just get really excited about it. It's, it's a really good time. It's a really good time. It's it's wonderfully distracting and very enjoyable. And man, when you put a pair of glasses on a, on a kid that really needs them, like a four or five-year-old kid mm-hmm. that really needs glasses. We have this kid who's, who is uh, autistic and, and not, not super, but you know, definitely uh, diagnosed and and did had no interest had sensory issues no interest in wearing glasses try fitting him for glasses was our you know, dad had to hold him down and not only do you have to fit them but you have to get this thing called a pupillary distance which is very hard to do in kids who don't want to they call it non-compliant but i just say kid that's just sort of antsy and, and doesn't want to sit there and deal with that stuff we got it and uh so he comes in and i i put the glasses on him for the first time and he didn't want to wear them i put them on him and his eyes just get so wide. I mean, just, he finally saw me and he, he, oh, he had wow. never seen me before. And he finally saw me and he's like, whoa, like, holy, who is this guy? And I, you know, I spent anyway, and it, and he goes from like not wanting to wear them to within five minutes, he won't take them off. Right? <laughs> they just, they, he's running all over the place, but with his glasses on, That's it great. is an amazingly rewarding experience. So it, it really like you just get like teary eyed thinking about it. It's like you're actually helping people versus like in the hedge fund world. I was, you know, my whole goal was to make rich people a little bit richer at a faster rate than they could do on their own. Right. And this is like, you're actually, you know, bringing some joy to families and, and improving lives. And it's a, uh, it's good. It's really good. Well, Sorry sounds- for that whole long discussion, but. No, interesting. It sounds wonderful. And I like the uh, takeaways about the uh, customer experience. I mean, that's important in every business, but I think it's, particularly important in the medical industry. So very, very cool. I fascinating to hear about. And I'm glad you are doing something that's so rewarding. Well, thanks, man. Life is good, man. If you worry about people in the world, there are people who have real problems. I am not one of those people. Do not worry about me. I am doing just fine. It's life. Life is pretty good. So I'm, I'm in a good place. I want to talk a little bit about Green First Forest Products. So you're on the board of that company. So mm-hmm. I know that you're kind of known on Twitter as being a lumber guy. So <laughs> with, with that, so how are you thinking about the positioning of Green First and you know the, the where that market's headed? So there's a lot to it and I'll condense it. And then we, if you want to ask specifics, we can get into it as much as you like. So the, the idea for forest products in general, forgetting Green First for a second, the idea, it's, it's a collision of two sort of big idea, what I think are pretty simple concepts. I think we're seeing that those two concepts are accurate, but we'll see. The first is that we're undersupplied on single family housing in the United States. That is somewhat controversial. I feel like it is less controversial today than it was six months ago, and even less controversial than it probably was a year ago or two years ago. But I believe fundamentally and strongly that we are undersupplied for single-family homes in the United States. Single-family homes is is the single biggest user of uh, dimensional lumber in North America, and that's sixty or sixty-five or you no know, high. Call it two-thirds of the market. The other one-third is repair and remodel demand. So, big idea. I don't think we have enough single-family homes. I think we've underbuilt since the Great Recession, and I think we need to catch up. And then on the other side of it, the cost curve for lumber production in North America has fundamentally changed. And uh, if you go back uh, 10 or 20 years ago, the best logs and the cheapest lumber was being produced in mass in British Columbia. 
And British Columbia has gone from, I think they were over 20% of total North American production. They're under 10 today. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if they got to five. I mean, it's going one direction in British Columbia. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. Uh, the mountain pine beetle is a big one. Wildfires are another big one. Conservation is another big one, but it's becoming very expensive to produce in British Columbia. And they've gone from the bottom of the cost curve to now they are the marginal producer. They're in the 500s, I believe, Western uh, US. So those two ideas sort of married for me to say, wow, lumber is actually a pretty interesting place to be. If you think we're going to build a lot of single family homes and you think the cost curve has changed, then if those two things are correct, there's some interesting outcomes to that. And Green First Forest Products is, in my opinion, one of the interesting outcomes of that. If you go back 20 years ago when BC was the low cost producer in dimensional, you didn't want to produce dimensional in Eastern Canada. And the reason for that is it's similar trees. But on the coast in BC, the trees are fat, big, wide diameter trees. And that, that is really important for cost of lumber production because these big logs produce a lot of two by fours. The more two by fours you can get out per log, the cheaper the two by four is per log. You go east and the, they're very narrow trees. And I, some, a forest person could tell you why that is. I don't know why it is, but that's just the case. You get the pine and the fir and things, but it's they're smaller trees, which means my utilization, my two by fours per log are much lower, which means my costs are higher. So in the east, it used to all be about newsprint pulp production. So there's a lot of residuals that come off those logs because they're narrower, because you're getting less two by fours. There's a lot of sawdust. There's a lot of pulp. There's a lot of things that come off those that made it where it wasn't attractive to produce two by fours there. But those residuals go into things like newsprint. And when newsprint used to be a thing 10 or 20 years ago, you could actually make money producing those residuals out of the trees and then producing newsprint. And so if you look at the history of Tembeck, which was sold to Rainier, which is now Green First Forest Products, they made a lot more money on newsprint than they did on logs. Logs were the residual, uh, sorry, uh, dimensional lumber. Dimensional lumber was the residual and the residuals were the primary. And that is flipped. So in Ontario in particular, there's a, a very favorable pricing regime. Uh, so it's very favorable politically, but it's also very favorable. It's very business friendly for log pricing. And as all the logs in Canada are owned by the crown, not all, but the vast majority are called crown lands. They're owned by the government. And so there's pretty favorable log pricing there, but the logs are just harder to produce. That being said, because BC can't get the logs anymore and the cost curve has shifted, our costs in Ontario and Eastern Canada are looking very competitive. In fact, they're, they're actually reasonably competitive with the US South where logs are Trees are basically free because there's tons of them, with the exception of duties. We have a duty rate that we have to pay bringing in uh, lumber from Canada. So you strip that out, actually looks pretty similar. So the idea was that the East, because of the marriage of these two ideas, demand for lumber is going to be higher. And then you had less lumber being produced from one of the biggest regions, which was not only changing the, the cost curve, but also means there's just less lumber entering the market. So if you need it and it's not there, it's going to drive these crazy price spikes. And nobody thought it was possible until 2020. We saw it, you know, lumber crossed 700. Everybody's like, oh my God, what the hell is happening? And what's happening is the industry isn't prepared for a lot of demand. It, I mean, since housing fell off a cliff, it, West Fraser has a great chart on this that shows all the lumber production. And it, it basically cratered after the uh, financial crisis and it never recovered. So capacity has never come back. Your most efficient mills in BC are now completely inefficient because they just simply can't get the logs that they used to get, certainly not at prices where they used to get them. And so that, in my mind, that drives, there's sort of two things that work for the East. One, cost curve is different and my costs haven't changed all that much and their costs are skyrocketing. Two, the industry itself is now very sensitive to shocks. So when housing went crazy and everybody was doing the stay-at-home projects, DIY ripped in 2020 and 2021, that was taking a ton of lumber out of the system and there wasn't a ton of lumber in the system for homes. And so people were just buying like crazy because they, they didn't know what they could get and when they could get. And you saw lumber was, you know, had was over comfortably over a thousand. I think Stinson had a print. Uh, he might've had a print at two, Stinson Dean might've had a print at 2000 that he showed me once. And uh, anyway, so, you know, you saw lumber just, just moved. And then there's some floods in BC caused some shipping issues. Lumber goes to 1300 again, you know, and I'm sitting here saying, like there's two dynamics. One, my cost structure in Ontario is looking pretty good. And two, the industry itself is much more fragile than it used to be, meaning you're going to have these price shocks. And when you have these price shocks, obviously the producers do really, really, really well. So that's the sort of macro. 
And then the sort of overlay of uh, what's interesting about the East, and that's not just Green First. Interfor was buying in the East, and and there's some other producers like Resolute in the East. It was just acquired, actually taken private uh, by Paper Excellence. So that's the sort of high level. And then with Green First in particular, there's sort of some, there's pluses and minuses. And and, and so I, I've laid out this like roadmap on Twitter of what my view is, is that we're trying to do. The board hasn't really blessed it, but I think Paul's letter puts a lot of context around that sort of checklist that I put out of things we're trying to do. It's pretty simple. The mills themselves that we acquired from Tembeck are favorably low. They have what we call a good fiber basket in Ontario. So a lot of logs, tons of logs, cheap logs. So that's what you want, right? And they're good logs. They're the good softwood logs. So the issue is the mills have never really had uh, the capital invested in them to make them incredibly efficient, right? They've been, they've been traded a few times. They were run for newsprint. They were never run for logs. So they really need capital to become, you know, sort of top quartile production assets. And there's some blocking and tackling, some simple stuff we thought could be done. I think we're seeing now that the blocking and tackling is having some impact, which I, I'm really enjoying. We also thought with uh, Green First, there was a chance that we're sort of an asset rich company that we could monetize some of these non core assets that I talked about. And, sort of clean up our balance sheet and put us in a position where we can really focus on these this high quality Ontario fiber basket. We've sort of done all those things. There's one piece that's missing, which is the Kenora piece, but it's now our executive chairman and our interim CEO, Paul, said in the last call that we, we're, we're inching closer to monetizing that. I think it's going to be a pretty good price. We paid 10 or 11 million Canadian for some land in Kenora and a closed mill the closed mill, I believe we've already gotten uh, 20 plus million dollars of value out of it by moving equipment to our other mills to make them more efficient. And then we, we're hoping to monetize 114 acres we have there. And we've got a LOI on a good chunk of that. It's not our most valuable piece. It's off the water a little bit, but it's looking, I believe Paul said on the call it was $8 million. So you sort of extrapolate that for a quarter of the land. You know, if, even if you just straight line it, you're looking at like 32 for that. We put in 10 or 11. 32 for the land straight lined and, and maybe 2025 20, for the equipment, it's looking like a pretty good return. So what I think the the pitch I'm trying to convey on Green First is like, look, the mills themselves need work. Uh, they are not the best mills. They need capital. So there's a turnaround aspect to this, which you know, turnarounds are always a, a you know, dicey proposition. But you have people that are very aligned, that are very focused, and we have some sort of unique, interesting things we can do to help our you know, positioning out and getting those assets sold. The, the mills we sold uh, were our highest cost mills. And that's because in Quebec, the pricing regime for logs is just very different than it is in Ontario and had our costs a little high there. So we really have gotten focused on the best fiber. And and uh, and so sort of, I guess the the answer for me is stay, stay tuned. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that one, lumber has been in the doldrums for nine months, 12 months. My hope and expectation is, is it won't stay that way. And that'll be good for us. We have a, we've had a, in addition to our debt, when we closed the deal, we had a, a what I would call an unfair duty regime for the first two years of our existence. We we're treated as a new entrant, which just means you're paying a fixed 20% duties. The industry right now is paying eight. So the fact that we're paying 20 and they're paying eight puts it at a pretty strong disadvantage, but that rolls off in August. Uh, so we go to the eight. So I, our uh, cash flows start to look better. And we've got some other assets too, in addition to Kenora, like, our duties on deposit, I think, crossed mid-80s last quarter, and they're going up. Unfortunately, they're going up every day, but that's a nice little asset that we have. And so, yeah, so the, the idea is, is that uh, lumber, I think, is going to be an interesting space over the next 10 years. I think Eastern Canada is going to be an interesting place to do business. And yeah, so, you know, sort of stay tuned. We'll see. And uh, you've got a, a, a board, of, uh, I think, owners that are aligned. Well, I know we're aligned, but I, I think also very interested in, in creating good outcomes for many reasons, uh, myself included. I, I would like to create a good outcome, just one, I'm heavily invested to also very public and I have a lot of friends and family in this and I want I want everybody to, to walk away with as good an outcome as possible. So anyway, stay tuned. Super interesting. Yeah. And I, I think it makes some sense. I mean, when I was surprised at all the strength that we've seen in the home builders lately with mortgage rates where they are. It definitely does seem like the appetite is there to uh, build more homes. And, you know, and like you mentioned, it sounds like the supply is pretty constrained. So yeah, you're probably uniquely positioned to to benefit from that. We had 1.6 million starts announced in May and it was, it was heavily weighted towards single family and 1.5 million completions, I believe, for May. 
to those numbers collectively that the industry believes, and I believe that we don't have enough production for 1.5 million starts. Uh, so if you see that on any sustained basis, you're going to see lumber move to some pretty interesting prices. So anyway, stay tuned. Cool. So before we wrap up, I was thinking, do you have any advice for maybe recent college graduate? They're looking to get involved in the hedge fund industry that you used to be a part of. What advice would you have for that kind of person? If you could pull it off, I mean, the, the, uh, the economics of it are just phenomenal. I mean, you, you can be paid more for less work and hedge funds than, than any other. I can't even imagine the other, unless you're, you know, nepotism, I guess, in a, in a family run business, you could probably be paid more for less, less work. But just the work in hedge funds is not hard and the economics are phenomenal, as we've been talking about. If you can pull it off, it's wonderful. It is hard to pull off because of that dynamic. It is incredibly competitive. And then oftentimes, you know, it, depending on who you work with, you may not see the kind of flow through that uh, you would expect to see is always a, a push and pull. But I'd say in general, if it's a career that you wanted, I would say, you know, go for it. It's not really related to investing so much, uh, but I think it relates to investing. The advice I give graduates, business school, people looking to make a career change, people really, it, it, it's the same advice I'd give somebody asking me about, you know, getting married. The secret sauce to getting married is to picking the right partner. <laughs> it's like so people ask me for any advice on picking a job, it's the same I'd say on picking a, a spouse, a partner. I'd say, you know, if you pick the right partner, then then no problems are problems. If you pick the wrong partner, then everything's a problem. I think in the case of people looking for jobs, they start with picking the industry and they say, well, I'll just take what I can get. That's fine. But I would also just say like, look, you know, spend as much time thinking about the people you're working with and, and aligning yourself with as you do about picking a, a spouse. I mean, these people are going to affect, you're going to spend a ton of time with them. They're going to affect your day-to-day -day life. And I think there are some you know, things you can think about compromises that you can make maybe on comp or maybe on just to be in the right place and to be with somebody who loves you and supports you and wants you to have a good outcome and a good career. And it sounds stupid, but I just, I don't think people spend enough time thinking about uh, their jobs as you know being partners of different people in an organization. And, and uh, so I just sort of encourage people to think of it that way, to be as as picky as they possibly can be about the people that they're working with. Uh, and, and I would say sacrifice some other things. You know, I'd, I'd rather marry somebody that I loved and trusted and wanted a great outcome for me that sort of existed with me in good faith all the time, as opposed to somebody who was very rich, but very difficult. You know, it just doesn't, this doesn't seem to me to be a very good trade. So I say, think about the same thing when you're thinking about a job. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And uh, you definitely, are going to be spending, uh, whether you're talking about a spouse, you're going to be spending a lot of time with that person and at your job. Sometimes you'll be spending more time with those people than you do with your spouse. So right. um, it makes sense that if you want to have a happy life, you definitely want to be partners with, with the right people. So I think that's Agreed. Good, good right. stuff, man. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on today. And what are the best places for people to uh, learn about you and uh, get in touch with you? Oh, I, I people reach out to me on Twitter all the time. That's probably the best place. I, I spend an embarrassing... Less time than I used to, but it's still an embarrassing amount of time on Twitter. So I just say I don't check LinkedIn really ever. If anybody ever wanted to reach out, you could just send me a DM on Twitter. It's it's the most efficient way to, to find me. Cool. Well, thank you for your time today. All right, man. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.